0: Yeah, I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse major O'Hulahan, and she makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe.
3: Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? we we'll gather around.
4: No.
5: You know these people walking around here talking about. The woman on left them all that kinda okay on. I don't see why that woman has to leave her. Mines ain't left me yet. But I don't know how soon. I keep that woman on my mind, just as fat and healthy she can be. She will do. You know, because I raise hogs, chickens, and cows, and everything. And she better not act like she hungry. Notice a cow dead. And if she want a choke, I'll go out there and catch one of them chokes. And she have pork chops all the week. Sure will. And every time she get hungry, She get evil. You can't blame the girl, cause she's a country girl. Now my baby's
6: a country girl. And she just can't help herself. Yes, my baby's a country girl. And she just can't. Got you. That's
7: And with that we'll wish you a good morning this is the bee and you're listening to labor and love radio that rather garbled opening set consisted of uh, a couple songs i threw in there um, in memoriam one of course for my brother get to one of his, but another for a good all-time friend named Earl Coleman, who passed away uh, this last week in Sacramento, a lifelong friend, and to him I dedicated that song Hungry Country Girl. Uh, At one point when he was living in San Francisco, I was at his house and he played that and it kind of remained me, with me forever associated with him. That was Otis Spawn, of course, the uh, great piano player with the Muddy Waters Band. He was uh, Waters' half-brother, hungry country girl. Uh, before that, we had Big Mama Mae Thornton her song. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. That was a joke on my friend Earl. I hope wherever he is, he gets it. And before that, we had a soundtrack of The Happening on the Streets of Ottawa, Canada in the year 2011. Members of the congregation of the local Greek church staged a uh, flash mob on the streets of Ottawa and danced the Zorba dance for about eight, ten minutes. The band was playing in one by one. It's a beautiful thing. You see people, small groups of people, finally, till it's built into a, a a group, a crowd that fills the street, all dancing the Zorba dance. And if you heard those sounds at the end there, that was a Greek tour. breaking dishes. Greek way of celebrating is to break glasses or dishes just to show you don't give a damn, right? And we'll talk about uh, the composer of that music, great Nikki uh, along with other things on our show, it's uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. We're going to celebrate that with the music from Buffy St. Marie and some music from the Ghost Dance, a couple versions of the song Cherokee. We'll have Radio Labor and uh, we we'll have Cherokee people labor in two minutes and a treatment of the ghost dance. Okay, the ghost dance was kind of the end of the road for uh, indigenous people in terms of their own, uh, setting their own destiny and living freely in the traditional way with a massacre at Wounded Knee. So we're going to look into that, the ghost dance. Uh, Okay, so this is Labor and Love Radio. We tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat, if you don't have a seat, at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work, then you're on the menu. Remember, you're on the menu and they're talking about you and they're talking about you and your life and your times. So it's uh, a lot more than just, uh, you know, who'll do what. And never Okay, never, but never let anyone into your life who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Okay. Speaking of labor, let's get on to radio labor.
4: Here we go. This is Solidarity News on Radio
1: Labor.
8: This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, October 8th, 2021. I'm Mark Balancho. In the report this week, how unions are confronting the digitalization of workplaces, Labor's campaign to ban nuclear armaments, the Labor Start report about union events, and singing,
9: I couldn't find Joe, Jack, John, or Jim, nobody could I see. Nothing but buttons and bells and lights all over the factory.
8: This is Radio Labor. As economies move towards greater digitalization with the use of computers and other technologies, it becomes even more important for unions to update their collective bargaining skills and strategies. That is the message that came out of a recent webinar on the topic organized by Public Services International. The PSI is the global union which represents 30 million public sector union members in 154 countries. It is developing research and reporting tools to help unions confront the increasing digitalization of workplaces and public services through collective bargaining. Daniel Bertosa, the PSI's Assistant General Secretary, spoke about the union's work in a webinar.
10: PSI has been doing a lot of work on digitalization. There are three main lessons that we took from some of the work we did. The first is that control over technology matters. Who controls the technology is important. The second is that unions can use collective bargaining to take back some control over some of these issues uh, surrounding digitalisation. And the third was unions are struggling a little bit to work out how to use collective bargaining to take back some of the control on digitalisation. And so that led us to try to find out how we could help. And so we are in the process of collecting a range of collective bargaining clauses that unions around the world have been negotiating to deal with digitalisation. And we're doing this for two reasons. The first objective is to provide a resource for affiliates to share the information from what other unions are doing so we can learn from each other. The second is to identify where there are gaps where we can do better and so we can spend some time developing the collective bargaining clauses that unions want and need but don't have. We've gathered these collective bargaining clauses from a wide range of unions, national and sectoral and company, public and private, union databases and even guidance from unions to officials or members and we've had quite a lot of contributions, mainly PSI affiliates mainly in the European Union, but also in Africa, Asia uh, and the Americas. When we got that all together, what we realised was that many unions know they have to do more, know that they need to develop clauses for their enterprise agreements or collective agreements, but are struggling to know where to start or even where their needs are. And so the first thing we did with our researchers is to develop a taxonomy, a way of sorting all this information so that you can find out what your needs are quickly and you can find the clauses that other unions have developed quickly. Take the member's inquiry or your bargaining agent's inquiry, work out what they're actually looking for, and quickly find the uh, uh, the agreement or the clause that another union has produced in that area and adapt it for your needs. So what are the results? Well, we found out that... A lot of work is actually being done on areas where unions have traditionally been strong. So there are clauses on employment and jobs, job security, training and skills, work organisation and working time, health and safety, the introduction of change and new technologies. Also, there's some progress on the right to disconnect and some progress on occasional teleworking we found there was a large difference in data protection and integrity the european gdpr is uh, is probably the most important guidance for the negotiation of rights in eu countries but outside of the eu there was much much less so where unions are negotiating on digital effects on traditional business we're doing okay what we found was we were weaker on the aspects where digitalization has a strong impact and has added a new dimension to work organization. So new forms of employment such as platform work or crowd working, there was very little flexible and largely unregulated forms of work organization that has been triggered by digitalization, so smart and agile working and internal crowd working, almost nothing on that either. And there was little on the aspects where digitalization has a strong impact and has added a new dimension to working conditions. Um, so, education and training such as e learning or learning platforms, online and self learning, IT risk assessments, so the way in which psychosocial strains are related to digital tools, and also the same as it relates to employees' information rights, uh, IT safety inspections, data storage, data governance, uh, and the provision of quality public services.
8: The first legally binding agreement to prohibit nuclear arms and work towards their elimination will come into force now that 50 nations have ratified it. But many more countries need to ratify the treaty. Countries such as the U.S., Britain, France, China, and Russia are still refusing to sign the agreement. That is why the International Trade Union Confederation has intensified its campaign to get more treaty ratifications. The ITUC is the global body which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. Ayuba Waba is the president of the ITUC. He is also the president of the Nigeria Labor Congress.
11: It is a honor to join the rest of the global working class in making this appeal in support of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. First is to say that the production, storage, and usage of nuclear weapons is a chilling demonstration of the auto-destruction that humanity is capable of. It is a negative return on our civilization and question the progress that humanity has made over the years. On behalf of the International Trade Union Confederation, representing unions in 163 countries, I present the resolve of workers all over the world to reject the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Workers also reject the proliferation of armed conflicts all over the world. Workers have suffered enough already from bombs and bullets or political conflicts created by others. This is totally unacceptable, as it greatly contradicts democratic values of peaceful negotiation. These values are the cornerstone of multilateral engagements. There are at least 2,000 tons of nuclear materials for weapons stored in some 40 countries, enough to make 40,000 bombs, the size of the one that devastated Hiroshima. The analysis of the risk of nuclear winter is simple. The risk is there because the weapons exist. The question is not if they will fall into the wrong hands. The question is when. We all seem to agree that nuclear arms are inhumane, and illegitimate source of power. But after decades of solemn political declarations, some governments still fail to deliver, The corporate world pushes its social responsibility aside when profits are to be made with weapons of mass destruction. Corporate interest fuels the arm race and pushes politicians to service greed and private interests rather than the people's safety. Apart from hunting people, investing in nuclear arms goes at the expense of social infrastructure such as jobs, schools, Housing and healthcare. The message from the global trade union movement is loud and clear. We need to ban nuclear arms now. In 2017, after years of work to raise awareness of their humanitarian impact, 122 countries negotiated and adopted a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Countries who failed to do the needful now and ratified this crucial. Treaty will find themselves at the wrong lane of history. Now is the time to bring democracy to disarmament. Sisters and brothers, we cannot build peace if we do not lower our arms. Here
8: with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder.
12: This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of World Day for decent work events and statements from unions around the world large-scale warning strikes in South Africa, and a surge in strike activity in the United States. The emerging trend in our news coverage this week is the global push for substantial wage increases by unions in all sectors, both public and private. The surge is being attributed in part to the expanded bargaining power of previously marginalized workers. Now recognized as being essential, these workers, ranging from food delivery bicycle riders through warehouse workers, truckers, and seafarers, are moving to take advantage of their increased power in the workplace. This trend goes hand-in-hand with organizing efforts among non-union workers in these same sectors. Look for stories on these themes from virtually every country where LaborStart collects union news. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news of progress in the fight for menopause leave in the United Kingdom, a wide-ranging report on workplace gender violence released by an Australian union this week, and how football players' unions representing women players around the world have been rallying to support the Afghan women's national team since its escape from the Taliban regime. Our health and safety newswire carried dozens of stories in as many languages about the impending technician strike in Hollywood. Excessive hours of work and the resulting exhaustion and accidents are at the core of the dispute. As well, we had items about how unions across Asia are pushing for a total ban on asbestos and a video interview with a Canadian nurses' union leader about the effects of almost two years working full-out with little time off on that country's health care workers. Our photo of the week is of one of last Saturday's massive demonstrations calling for an end to the Bolsonaro regime in Brazil. The country's unions played a key role in organizing this campaign and have already announced the dates of future mobilizations. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor.
8: Now here is the American folk singer Joe Glazer with his song, Automation.
9: On a Monday morning When I got down to the factory It was lonely, it was forlorn I couldn't find Joe, Jack, John Or Jim, nobody could I see Nothing but buttons and bells And lights all over the factory
5: Well, I walked,
9: walked, walked Into the foreman's office To find out what was what I looked him in the eye And I said what goes This is the answer I got His eyes turned red Then green and blue And it suddenly dawned on me There was a robot Sitting in the seat Where the foreman used to be I walked all around All around up and down Across that fact I watched all the buttons and the bells and the lights. It was a mystery to me. I hollered Hank, Frank, Ike, Mike, Joe, Jack, Don, Dan, Roy, Ray, Ed, Fred, Pete. And a great big mechanical voice boomed out All your buddies are up, sorry. All your buddies are up, sorry. All your buddies are up, sorry. Well, I was scared, scared, scared I was worried, I was sick As I left that factory Decided that I had to see the president Of the whole darn company When I got up to his office He was rushing out the door With a scowl upon his face For there was a great big mechanical executive Sitting in the president's place. I went home my ever-loving wife I told her about the factory She kissed me, she hugged me She cried a little bit As she sat on my knees. Now I don't understand all the buttons and the bells But there's one thing I will say I thank the Lord that love's still made in the good old-fashioned way
13: And that's
8: it, international labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Polanski. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
7: That was our radio labor feature. Um, worldwide labor news, uh, including the IAS, IASTE strike. What is that about? Let's pick up on that now. Let's see, Hollywood strike. Hollywood union workers vote 98%. i like to get a video play for you. Um, IATSE represents most of the studio AND HISTORICALLY...
8: Hollywood is on pins and needles tonight ahead of a potential shutdown of film and TV production. Members of the International Association of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, are voting on a strike authorization. That vote ends tonight with results expected to be known by tomorrow. The union represents thousands of production workers. Authorization would not automatically trigger a strike, but it gives the union's president the authority to call one if negotiations break down.
7: And it turns out that the workers did authorize that strike. They voted about 98% to go on strike. IATSE Demand. Got an ad here for Chippendale. Anyway, let's read the article.
14: Thousands of behind the scenes workers are deciding whether to walk off sets across the nation. Their union is called the International Alliance of Theatrical and Staff Employees. It's asking some 60,000 members to vote for the first strike in the union's history. The vote needs a 75% majority, and the results are expected to be released on Monday. This comes after the union couldn't come to an agreement on its latest contract with the studios. The union demanded higher wages, larger contributions to health and pension plans, longer rest periods, and residuals for content that airs on streaming services. But the studios didn't budge. Now, some of Hollywood's biggest stars are showing their support for a strike. In a tweet, actor Seth Rogen wrote, our films and movies literally would not exist without our crews, and our crews deserve better. And The Grace and Frankie co-stars Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin sharing this image. (laughs) You can see they're posing with t-shirts supporting the strike. Chris O'Fault now, a deputy editor and reporter for IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit. Chris, how serious is this potential of a strike?
15: I think the big thing here, Shep, is that a strike is not imminent. Hmm. Certainly, leadership asking the members for strike authorization is unprecedented. These contracts are negotiated every three years. They have never had to do that before. And I feel confident on Monday that strike authorization will clear the 75 percent, no well, problem. But wow, that, that's honestly, a big number. Yeah, they're going to they're going to stick to their they're going to stay with their leadership. They're going to back them on this. But the thing is, is that leadership, IATI leadership, has been very clear why they want that strike authorization. It's to bring the studios back to the table. Studios are stonewalling on streaming dollars. That's the big financial thing. Uh, our consumer dollars are going towards streaming. They're spending billions on streaming for new content, and 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 their con- the cruise crews the crews contracts don't reflect that. And so, if they do continue to stole wallet on that, yeah, a month, six weeks, um, a strike could be could be real.
14: And, and that that could be a real pain too, because the studios have really been hurting during the during the during the COVID, and you just wonder what the damage would be.
15: Huge, huge damage, and I'll tell you why. Because the new model, right, is these streaming platforms, and the one thing that they've all learned from Netflix is that these streaming platforms. Gobble up content. You got it, doesn't matter how deep your library is, you got to constantly get that churn going. New movies, new shows. That's the model that Netflix has established, and that's what Disney's trying to do, and that's what HBO is trying to do. And as these other studios have started to get into this game, COVID happened. So at this yeah. time when they were supposed to be ramping up all their production, production went away. So they're playing catch up right now. Well, the, the stars, stars are kind
14: of getting on their side, and I wonder does that make a difference or not?
15: right now like Seth Rogen I expected Seth to say something and the people that have said something so far it's to be expected but if it steamrolls if more and more of these big stars say this I remember this is their hair and makeup people these are their customers this is a close relationship and and to be honest this streaming fight is being had by the actors it's being had by the directors this isn't just a crew and the more that there is this all this in we're all in this together Hollywood's going to start to wonder who's showing up for work. And so that is a nightmare because obviously those people have a, have a big, um, have a big pedestal, but it's when we start going beyond the people that are uh, often speak up like Seth, um, that Hollywood's going to have to worry. I
14: hear you. Chris O'Fall. Good of you. Thank you.
7: Okay. So that's the skinny on the Hollywood uh, scene. The, uh, i-a-t-s-e basically it's about bigger uh, profits that studios are getting from streaming movies and such things new shows everybody needs new shows so here's to the i-a-t-s-e uh, generally speaking they were In the 40s, the day of the the Screen Actors Guild, IATSE were the more conservative unions, um, much more involved with the workplace issues, bread and butter issues instead of um, condition, working conditions, things like that, or going for control of the business. See how that works out. Well, it is coming up. It's uh, what we used to call Columbus Day, but now it's uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, is what it's called. And why why that change? Well, uh, Columbus was honored when I was a kid growing up here in San Francisco. Italian American community used Columbus Day as kind of their their ethnic holiday in the way that St. Patrick's Day was with uh, Irish people. These were big deals. People would have parades you know, going down Market Street. Big groups of people and civic organizations and uh, local businesses would parade. Uh, At some point in New York, um, I think annually, the landing of Columbus was staged as Columbus came and sailed into New York Harbor. It's just that now we've found out who Columbus really was. Uh, Granted, he was a uh, a brave uh, navigator, mariner, good sailor. Uh, but that's not all he was, and he didn't discover anything. We were always told that Columbus discovered America. It, the, the phrase itself sort of falls off your tongue because it's been repeated so many times in my life. Well, you can't discover something where there are millions of people <laughs> in a place where millions of people are living. And uh, when Columbus landed, one thing that was never explained to us in school was that Columbus was the advance man for a commercial venture. These people who had put up the money for him to go and sail were looking at profits. They were looking at I mean, you could get a bag of pepper. It, a bag of pepper, you know, you could. If you showed up in Europe with that, or a bag of sugar, or a bag of cloves, a lot of these spices were used to to preserve meat. So there was an enormous profit to be made, and this is what they were looking for when Columbus landed. The first thing he wanted to know was where's the gold? First of all, I claim this land... For my king, King Ferdinand. Okay. Used to be your country, now it's mine. Actually, it's not mine, it belongs to King Ferdinand. And uh, they wanted to know where's the gold. And they started uh, forcing the natives to bring in gold. And they let loose their wild animals who ate up all the land that the natives had tilled and this led to an ecological disaster and uh, to the annihilation of the Tainos, the group that, uh, that's, that were living in the area where Columbus came. Um, they would kidnap native women, rape them, pass them around. off people's hands and limbs if they didn't find enough gold columbus was a lot more than just an explorer and his people were a lot more than just settlers nowadays we know the word settlers for what it is used not only in the, telling about the the west settling the west we are settlers also used to tell about what happens in Palestine. Israeli people who take over Palestinian homes and land are called, yeah, you guessed it, settlers. So we all probably know enough about Native American history to understand how that was one thing that had to be eliminated. The quote-unquote settlers came to what's now the U.S.,
4: Uh,
7: they wanted to get rich. The whole idea was to show a profit. These were workers. These were uh, advanced people. And uh, they showed a profit, you know. They kidnapped. Uh, natives and made them slaves, took them back to Spain. So Columbus isn't exactly someone we wanna honor in that way. Uh, he was not, he was in terms of the Native American population, in terms of US history, he was not a good person. So the word is to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. I'm going to play a couple of things about Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, Struggle against Custer, the last gasp of the nation, the Sioux nation, at uh, Wounded Knee. Chilling, terrible stories, but stories that.
10: By 1890, no Indian people anywhere in the West lived freely on their own land. And even the reservations on which they struggled to survive were being broken up under the Dawes Act. Congress had
8: cut appropriations.
7: Let's do this. Let's play Crazy Horse's account of the Custer fight. And we'll play this out. There are
14: many paths.
7: No, there aren't. Hope everyone's doing well. This is oral history of the Battle of the Little Bighorn.
16: This is... Uh, THEY WERE PART OF THE FAMILY OF MY GREAT-GRANDFATHER. BUT THEY WERE CHILDREN THAT CAME WITH MY GREAT-GRANDMOTHERS. You know? AND uh, MY GREAT-GRANDFATHER MARRIED TWO SISTERS. ONE OF THEM WAS uh, SEEN BY HER NATION, WHICH IS MY GREAT-GRANDMOTHER. AND THEN HER SISTER'S NAME WAS FORO. AND THEY WERE MARRIED BEFORE THEY MARRIED. A great grandfather to another man named Barlowes. And they each had a son from him. And my granduncle from, Sitting Bull, uh, from Seen by Her Nation's lineage, his name was Refuses Them, but he was a deaf mute. And when he was with Cody, they gave him the name John Sitting Bull, which he wasn't Sitting Bull's son biologically. And the other one's name was Little Soldier, who was, was his son. And these two were, in a matter of speaking, you might say they could be brothers, they could be cousins, you know, because they got the same father but different mothers. And the mothers were sisters. But they were at the Little Bighorn battlefield as, as young boys during the battle. And while it wasn't really a battle, it was just a camp, big encampment. And, and uh, it started out around the uh, Rosebud River up there, Creek, you know. And, what it is is the, the 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 camp got kind of big. You know, the the horses actually, then people had more horses than they did people. So uh, the, they were eating up the grass. So they decided, and then the food was kind of running scarce. So they sent scouts out to look different places, see if there's any game, and they found a whole game of antelope at the at the what they call the Valley of the Greasy Grass. So they moved the camp. Moved it was. It wasn't like the historians say, you know, the closures Minicojas, Hukba. There were just people who came, who left the agencies to join my great grandfather. Because he wanted to have counsel. He wanted to talk to them about the encroachment of the Black Hills in 1874 here. So they, he wanted to have counsel. What were they going to do about it? To the non treaty natives that were out here, or those that were within the confinements of these agencies. If they have compassion for a traditional way of life, to come and join him. And they didn't come as tribes, they came as individuals or as families. And they kept showing up. And there wasn't that many people. I mean, it was more horses, because people have more horses than they did, you know, families. So some guy would have two, three horses, you know, maybe some would have five horses, depending on on his expertise as as a caretaker of raids and whatever. So the horses were eating up the grass, so they moved to the greasy grass, which is the Little Bighorn River area, and they had a big feast there. You know, they had the hunts of the antelope that's there, and they weren't expecting Custer to show up because, you know, they didn't really. It was just going to have a, they were going to hunt the whole council there, and all of a sudden, here comes Custer, it was D- June 25th, and he split his command up. and The first one's attack was Reno. In the south, and and the bigger of the villages that were there was the Hunkpapa, because you know that was my great grandfather's band, the Bad Bull band. And there were others that's around there. They would show up at the at the area. It might be Ugalala or Minikhoju or Cheyenne, and they would show up and they would see somebody they know, you know, and they'd say, "Hey, put your teepee here," so they camp next to them. So they weren't like. Like, you know, like the historians say, the Uglala were here, the Mani were here, the Ukhbapa were in the South. It's like A Company, B Company, C Company. You see, they're, they're just trying to equate it to a military type of a thing, which isn't that. And they also try to call the, our our societies warrior societies, like they were military. That's not what the societies were. The Strong Heart Society was a... Was a is how they say it in Lakota, is, is, a, is a group of, of honorable men who consisted of their compassion, their generosity, yet their bravery. They showed, they exhibited this, and they were invited to become part of this society. So th- they weren't just, they were, they were care- caretakers, providers of the, of the camp is what they were. You know, this, that's what a society was. It wasn't that they were all the warlike, as they say. You know, the most warlike ones were the Americans. You know, they always coming after you. And all, you were, all, all they were doing is protecting their homeland. And um, so when Reno attacked, everybody was fighting him, you know, going after him. At the same time, my granduncles were telling me the story. The little soldier is the one who told the story because he could speak. Him and, he used to, when I was a little kid growing up, on a reservation, and they used to come to the house in the summertime and, and come visit, because John, the deaf man, John Single stayed with us. And his brother would come along with Dewey Beard, and they would sit around in the shade of the house, and they'd, they'd put up a little lean-to out there, because they stayed away from us, because they were traditionals, you know, and they'd just, you know, they'd, they'd reminisce about the old days. And uh, my mother would hang in with them, and, you know, usually they would talk in sign language. She would talk sign language. And they would tell stories, and she would tell it to us at night. You know, my sister and I, you know, we it was like bedtime stories. She'd tell us what these guys were talking about. And a lot of it was humor. You know, a lot, a lot of, you, cause that's, that's the Lakota culture, it's humor. Everything has to have laughter. You know, you have to laugh. And they were telling us that these young boys were, were commissioned to watch the horses, which were in the northern part of the, the village. Said they had more horses there than they had people, so they didn't want these horses to scatter because of the fight down south of Reno. And all of a sudden, they said, "Now, the story that they told me, it coincides with some other guys' stories that they that, that their ancestors told them. The Cheyennes have a similar story. And but the the point is that there was, a, there was a column of soldiers that was coming from the east, what they call the Deep Ravine, which is just south of the." of the, where that cemetery is, or the visitor center is. And that's where kind of like toward the northern end of the village he was coming in. And the and little soldier said these soldiers are right at the edge of the river there when they seen them. And they yelled out of alert, you know, to everybody. They yelled out of alarm, you know, to, that the soldiers can cross the river. So here comes some warriors that, that left out this area, some guys, and they came and they started, had these rifles and they started shooting at them, and they said all of a sudden there's two at the front of the column were shot off their horses, and then the next bunch grabbed one of them, put them back on the horse, and he said, and they were telling Lakota, it's just hard to, you know, to, to tell it, you know, it was kind of dramatic the way he told it in Lakota, he said, all of a sudden he said it was just a rout. He said, they just turned around he said, usually, he said, from his experience watching soldiers, he said, they would, you know, they would go in columns, you know, they would be in, you know, you know. he said, they just turned around, he said, and they just scattered, and they started trying to get to the top of the hill, and he said, they didn't make it. He said, it was, he said, you know, the funny part, one funny part of the story he's talking about was one of these young boys come up, he was about 19 years old, he said he had three horses, and he had them over at his end, you know. And, one of them was his, his, uh, his war pony. I guess you might say. You know, he wanted to get on his war pony, but it was kind of a feisty horse. He said it kept running around in circles. So he gave his weapons to a little soldier to hold for him. And he said he finally got on the back of his horse there, and he got his weapons back, and he went across the, the river to join the fight, and it was over. He said that's how fast it was. He said by the time the young man got on his horse went across, and he said they all went across and. They didn't realize who the guy was that was shot, but they thought it was... They found uh, Custer up there on the side of the hill. He had a bullet hole in his chest, and he had one in his temple. And the... the... the reason they had that hole in his head, they think, is either he did it himself or his brother did it for him. You know, he killed him just not to get captured or something. And... um, there's so many scenarios, but he told, he, he said that the Lakota didn't scalp him or take anything of him because a man who is a coward, you don't want to take anything from him because it's, it's you disrespect yourself if you take anybody who, who killed himself. You, know, you don't take his hair or you don't take anything of him because you don't want his energy to affect you. Being, being a coward like he was, but that bullet hole in his chest, they think, and he had his hair cut short. And he wasn't dressed in his regular buckskin outfit. That day at the Little Bighorn there, I think the, 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 was like I always say, when you're walking towards a dog and he's backing up, could be the most friendliest dog around, but his tail touches the wall. He knows he can't back up no more. He's gonna come at you, and I think this is what happened at the battle bighorn because the people were pushed to the limits and they had to retaliate but they went against the vision of my great-grandfather and after the battle was over my grandfather rode through there my great-grandfather rode through the battlefield he knew what was going to happen already knew what was in store for his future generations because they went against the vision the vision said leave them as they lay do not take anything that belongs to them, their scalp, their food, clothes, nothing. Do not cut them open or nothing, but they did. And he knew what was in store. were gonna, su- his future generations are gonna suffer at the descendants and the relatives of these soldiers who were mutilated here. So this is what, what lay in store for us.
17: The Ghost Dance was a spiritual movement that arose among Native Americans living in the west of the country. It began among the Paiute people in 1869 with a series of visions from an elder medicine man named Woziwap. These visions foresaw renewal of the earth and help for the Paiute people as promised by their ancestors. Initially, Woziwap said that he saw some great cataclysm removing all the settlers, leaving behind only natives, But in later visions, he saw an event that removed all people from the continent, after which those who faithfully practiced the spirituality of their ancestors would be miraculously returned. Later still, his vision no longer predicted the destruction of settlers, but an immortal and peaceful life for those who practiced his spiritual teachings. A ceremony that featured a communal circle dance was central to the ghost dance suggested by those visions. Woziwab passed away in 1872. On January 1st, 1889, a Paiute named Wovoka, renamed Jack Wilson, had a dream during the eclipse of the sun. He had a vision of dying, speaking with God in heaven, and being told to teach the new dance to the people. His prophecy was similar to that of Woziwa. He said that he saw the settlers leaving or disappearing, the buffalo returning, and the land restored to native people all across the continent. In this vision, ancestors would be brought back to life and all would live in peace. Wovoka's father, Tavibo, had befriended and assisted Woziwab during his life. After Tavibo's death, Wovoka had been raised by the American family of David Wilson. Hearing of the new prophet among the Paiute, representatives from many different tribes traveled to speak with him. Letters were sent by leaders of the movement to other native peoples and tribes to explain the vision and ceremony that would help bring about the transformation of the earth. Leaders of the movement also visited various native tribes to help teach them about the vision and the dance. Wovoka's teachings emphasized maintaining a peaceful relationship with the settlers. Growing up, he had some exposure to Christianity, so it is not surprising that there are mentions of Jesus or a messiah in his teachings. He stated that by practicing the ghost dance, his vision of a peaceful world would become reality. Wovoka described the dance to his followers. When you get home, you must begin a dance and continue for five days. Dance for four successive nights, and on the last night, continue dancing until the morning of the fifth day, when all must bathe in the river and then return to their homes. You must all do this in the same way. I want you to dance every six weeks, make a feast at the dance, and have food that everybody may eat. Gathering around, the Native Americans wore clothing of eagle feathers, claws, horns, called the ghost shirts. These tribal attires were thought to protect the natives from bullets. The medicine men and prophets addressed the crowd by reminding them of the message and guiding them through the process of the ceremony, including the direction of the dance, the chant, and the formation of the circle. Ghost dance medicine men singers stood in the middle, sometimes around a sacred pole, while participants held hands and danced around in a circle with a shuffling side-to-side step, swaying to the rhythm of the songs they sang. As the people danced, it was common that some dancers fell into a trance, distancing themselves from the circle. Some would even fall down unconscious. The ghost dance could have hundreds, even thousands of participants. The Bureau of Indian Affairs agents grew disturbed when they became aware that so many natives were coming together and participating in a new and unknown event. In early October of 1890, Kicking Bear, a Lakota Su visited Sitting Bull at Standing Rock, telling him of his visit to Wovoka. He told him of the great number of other natives who were there as well, referring to Wovoka as the Messiah. And he told him of the prophecy that the next spring, when the grass was high, the earth would be covered with new soil and bury all the white men. The new soil would be covered with sweet grass, running water, and trees and the great herds of buffalo and wild horses would return. All natives who danced the ghost dance would be taken up into the air and suspended there while the new earth was being laid down. Then they would be returned to the earth along with the ghosts of their ancestors. As the dance spread to the Lakota Sioux, the Bureau of Indian Affairs agents became alarmed. They claimed that the Lakota developed a militaristic approach to the dance and began making ghost shirts they thought would protect them from bullets. The natives also spoke openly about why they were dancing. The agent in charge of the Lakota eventually sent the tribal police to arrest Sitting Bull and to force him to stop the dance. In the struggle that followed, Sitting Bull was killed, along with a number of policemen. Following the killing of Sitting Bull, the United States sent the army to disarm the Lakota Sioux. During the events that followed, now known as the Wounded Knee Massacre, on December 29, 1890, 457 U.S. soldiers opened fire upon the Lakota Sioux, killing more than 200 of them. 25 policemen were also killed. The Ghost Dance reached its peak just before the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890. When it became apparent that ghost shirts did not protect from bullets and the expected resurrection did not happen, most former believers quit the Ghost Dance. Wovoka, disturbed by the death threats and disappointed with the many reinterpretations of his vision, gave up his public speaking. However... He remained well respected among his followers and continued his religious activities. He traveled and received visitors until the end of his life in 1932. After the Wounded Knee Massacre during 1891 and 1892, the ghost dance spread to the Pawnee, oto Missouri, Iowa, Osage, and Quapaw. Each tribe composed its own songs and adapted the dance in accordance with participants' own visions, reviving old-time clothing, weapons, dances, and hand games. On the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, Commissioner of Indian Affairs Thomas J. Morgan visited Oklahoma Territory and, seeing no signs of violence as the result of a ghost dance, made no attempt to prohibit it. The ghost dance continued uninterrupted in Oklahoma until at least 1914. Other movements and dances such as the sun dance, bear dance, peyote religion, and Native American church share aspects of the ghost dance movement, such as foretelling a better time and guiding natives to a better life. There are still members of this religious movement today. The Ghost Dance movement continues to be a symbol for Native Americans to attempt in preserving their heritage. Thank you for watching. If you liked the content, please consider subscribing, sharing the video, and supporting the channel on Patreon. We also launched our merch. So make sure.
1: Why dating a young Latin woman is a good option?
7: That's the ghost dance, and um, here's a piece of the music played uh, during the ghost dance. Um, Ghost dance song.
18: time. A Cree and a Sioux and a Navajo and a Rapaho and a Hopihio. We were stranded, snowbound, hey ho. Well, I don't know. Sleeping on the floor like the best of friends, living on tea and odds and ends. Oh, were we lucky? Now it all depends. from town. And me, I'm listening, hey, oh, big mountain guys. Watch the sunrise in your eyes, taking care of the elders' pride. Hey, hey, Mother Earth. Hey, hey, Father Sky. And me, I have watched it grow. Corporate greed and a lust for gold and coal the uranium. keep the indians under your thumb pray like hell when your bad times come hey rip them up strip them up get them with a gun she was a. woman, hunted in the land, what did you say about uranium? She come to see me grow corporate greed and a lust for gold and coal and oil and hey now uranium keep the indians under your thumb pray like hell when your bad times come hey rip them up strip them up get them with again the
7: That was a Buffy St. Marie set. The Iranian war was the last one Um, positing the idea that the white people want to take away everything that's valuable. Over and over again, they promise things to the Native American people and don't deliver, like one of their chiefs said. The whites made lots of promises, but they kept only one. They said they would take our land, and they did. So that was uh, Buffy. First with their rock and roll, Not the Loving Kind. Really nice rock and roll from Buffy St. Marie. Then it was uh, a love charm. And finally, we had the Uranium Wars. with Buffy St. Marie, who eventually settled in Hawaii, I believe. She's never stopped saying her talk and singing her song. Buffy St. Marie. Let's take a look now at uh, let's see I want to take a look at Got Radio Labor Let's play this one at the Indian Reservation the Donald Trump. That was Don Farden with uh, Cherokee Nation, recorded also by uh, Raiders, as in Paul Revere and the Raiders. And uh, Cherokee Nation. Maybe someday when you've learned, Cherokee Nation will return. Here's another take on the vote by the uh, Hollywood over the Hollywood cruise. I members discuss how workers in the entertainment industry have been run into the ground and why they're fighting back. According to an announcement from the union, 90% of members voted and 98% voted to say yes. The vote could result in roughly 60,000 workers walking off the job and bringing the entertainment industry to a halt. As consumers, we tend to associate the entertainment industry with acting stars, elite directors and producers, and big studio executives, but hundreds and even thousands of workers make every production possible and many of them are grossly underpaid overworked and denied basic necessities like breaks and time to sleep between shifts combined with the explosion of streaming services and ever increasing demands for studio quality productions workers in the entertainment industry are being run into the ground and they've reached a breaking point So let's keep an eye on that. What will happen now that the union has strike authorization? They may or may not vote to strike. Talked last week about the college football players union and the Teamsters elections coming up. They win by the Nabisco workers after a five-week strike, five-week strike. Let's read a little about Miki Seadrakis before we leave. He was born on Chios, on the Greek island of Chios. His father was from Crete. Um, His mother was from Asia Minor, now called Turkey, for a long time a part of Greece. Um Drakis won various prizes in the 50s when he was a student and uh he scored in movies of course his big the big one was uh Zorba the Greek in May 1963, the Greek pacifist Gregorius Lambrakis was murdered. Um, Theodrakis founded the Lambrakis Democratic Youth and was elected its president. It started a vast cultural renaissance movement and became the greatest organization, political organization, in Greece. With more than 50,000 members. Following the 1964 election, Serdakis became a member of the Greek Parliament associated with the left-wing EDA. He was blacklisted by the cultural establishment. At the time of his greatest artistic glory, a large number of his songs were censored before studio or were not allowed on the radio station. 1964, he wrote the music for Zorba the Greek, whose main theme is the most recognizable Greek song in the world. In 1967, when the colonels took power, Theodrakis went into hiding and was uh, founded the Patriotic Front. On June 1st, the colonels published Army Decree Number no. 13, which banned playing and even listening to his music. Drakis was arrested on August 21st and jailed for five months following an international solidarity movement with people like Dmitry Shostakovich, Leonard Bernstein, Arthur Miller, and Harry Belafonte, that demanded his freedom... He was allowed to go in exile to Paris. Um, He arrived outside, he arrived at Le Bourget Airport in Paris where he met Costa Gravas, French filmmaker, Melina Mercuri and her husband, Jules Dasson. He was immediately hospitalized because he had uh, Tuberculosis. Visited uh, Chile in 1971, meeting Salvador Allende, the democratically elected president. Composed uh, Canto General to go with the poems of Pablo Neruda. And... uh, Returned to Greece, never stopped agitating for uh, left-wing causes. Uh, When the colonels were overthrown, he returned to Greece. This was 1974. Um, He opposed the Kosovo War, NATO's War, and the Iraq War. Um, Anyway. Mikisteadrakis. Let's see now. It's just about time for us to get out of here. This is the B and um I would like to play. Are people calling me? I don't want to hear from you now. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, So Theodrakis, and then we'll find um, Zorba the Greek to go out with, Mikis Theodrakis. Let's see, Orostes Zorba. It's also called the Sirtaki dance, traditional Greek dancing. Let's see. Soros to Sorba. This is a B. So what do we do when things get depressing? What do we do when everything seems to be falling apart and doesn't matter anyway? We dance. We dance the Zorba dance. We dance dances and click our heels together. Enjoy. Joy because we're here. This is the Bee. This is the Labor and Love Show. Today we celebrated Mikis Teodrakis. Celebrated. Native American peoples, we celebrated, in a short way, we celebrated my buddy, Earl Coleman. There'll be more from Earl next week. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table that is where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of your time. This is Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Hoping to be back with you next week at 10 a.m. Work the day ship on the Labor and Love Show. Bye, everybody.
6: Take this bread.
3: Punk. Mutiny F. M. has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat.
1: <laughs> it's coming soon, the 6th annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Six venues. 24 shows, seven days, 75 comics from all over the United States at amazing local venues. Haciento, Atlas Cafe, El Rio, Milk Bar, OMG, and The Bar on Dolores. Special headliner shows at El Rio, Thursday night, 7 and 9 o'clock, featuring Scott Capurro, headliner, amazing comedian. Also, Andy Iwansio, out of Seattle, here for the 6th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. All tickets are $10, except the headlining show, which are 20 You can find all of the shows on Mutiny Radio's Eventbrite. Reserve them now and don't miss out 2021 the sixth annual mutiny radio comedy festival
19: black block a novel about protest from san a sample the walk from union square to the bar is a long way for a drink so you want a few stopovers. You get warmed up at Lefty Duels, an old-time tavern with memorabilia and a menu from another century. Then a market street dive to rub elbows with the hoi polloi. Next is a Folsom Leather Bar. The dark, goth soundtrack is a refreshing change from the usual jukebox anthems, but you must avert your eyes lest you observe gentlefolk in flagrante. That means fucking. Tonight, none of these places are open unless looters have broken in. The city is shut down because of the riots. Thank you, find me at sandrowriter.com, and Black Block is on Amazon.
3: if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Darryl, are you serious? I can get people to
7: listen to my jokes?
3: And they'll even say nice things, dude, you before they tell you how to get improvements.
7: No way. What is this dag nabbit
13: thing called?
3: It's Joke Workshop. Joke
20: acid 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 thank you that song is called acid and fapping
13: Good evening there, my friends here at dot Evan, Chester Cashcock here and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to PamTastics' comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pam Tastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground, Comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is in <laughs> But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak ceiling yes. so then all you gotta do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10pm as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe and what's better than the universe <laughs> it's a cash cock honey yes.
20: I was really, really just cool.
12: leaving the theater. I this ...Cadillac, convertible, 1969 gold Cadillac with the white material that up to ...and I started to do some thinking. And ...around dinner on the freeway and I'm I a really, really good time. Flat black classic. and big spliffs and cruising on Cadillac 92. on the freeway. I am I a total friendly fraud,
4: fraud and Laurie Starr- Starr- This is absolutely right. I am Teddy
0: Bowie,
20: an adolescent. And I will cut the oh, Henry,
0: yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude
4: mines, man. Subliminal
1: SF.